Romans part 17. I thought we were going to get down to verse 21, but we're only going to get to verse 11. So uh, we'll try to finish 12 through 21 next week, which is, I guess, a good thing because verse 11 is a good stopping point. He kind of shifts at verse 12. But uh, we read verses 1 through 5, went over those last week, and we'll be looking at 6 through 11 this week. It says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So starting verse 6, it says, For when we were yet without strength. And this is meaning uh, we as humanity have no strength to save ourselves. Um, Seems to be speaking of before the cross, and not to whether or not one could repent and have faith. Our hope is not in our own strength. So notice he says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So when we were yet without strength, before the cross. And again, in the context of Romans, uh, Romans 1 through 3, he goes through showing how they're the beginning of creation, even though they could see the things of God clearly in creation. They knew of God because it was very close to creation. No doubt Adam would have told Cain and Abel about God and creation and all that, and they would have told their children. Of course, people lived six, seven, eight, nine hundred years, so they would have no doubt told their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and would have known who God was, but they rejected him. And we read about that in Romans 1. And of course, uh, the Jews, how they don't keep the law, right, in uh, Romans chapter 2. So he's already showed that as humanity... We are sinners, and that's what he concludes in Romans 3. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Um, so we as humanity, humanity, we have no strength to save ourselves. That's what he's saying here. For when we were yet without strength, um, in due time, Christ came and Christ died at the right time. So you had that phrase, in due time. You also have it, I believe, in Galatians 4.4. 4. Or talks about at the time appointed. It says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of Son. So here it says, uh, The fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And of course, that's talking about um, him coming born of Mary, a virgin. And so there was a time that was appointed for him to come in the flesh as baby Jesus. Think about Christmas approaching, and we say that Christmas is the story of Jesus' birth. Um, but there was a appointed time for that to happen. Romans uh, 5 or 6, there was an appointed time for Christ to come and die. Uh, you think about Paul talks about how we were uh, predestined in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would have to be in Christ to be saved, that this mystery was hidden God. Okay, God knew what was going to happen before he ever created the world, and he had an appointed time for Christ to come to earth and for Christ to die. Um, if you look at John eight twenty, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, 
you see him say things like, my time is not yet. My hour is not yet. He says, uh, these, these words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. So he teaches in the temple, and it says no man lays their hands on him, meaning to grab him, kill him, whatever, because his hour was not yet come. Speaking about the hour of his death, it was not yet come. So again, there was an appointed time for Christ to go to the cross, to die. And here in John 8, it was not yet. If you look at Mark 14, 41, it says, And he cometh the third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So again, this is when he's in uh, the garden. He tells his disciples, you know, can't you stay awake and pray? He gets on for uh, not praying, watching. And then he comes the third time and says, sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, uh, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So now he says, the hour is come. And of course, this is right before um, the Romans come after Judas betrays him and takes him and puts him in prison. So it's talking about the hour of his death, or the hour has come. So the point being in Romans 5, 6, there was a time for Christ to die, an appointed time before the foundation of the world. And so Paul says, when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So there was an appointed time there for Christ to come and die. And it says Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel is only for the ungodly, Okay. So if you're ungodly, the gospel is for you. So the gospel is for everyone because everyone is ungodly. Again, he's pointed that out in the first three chapters. All are sinners. So it says Christ died for the ungodly. This is uh, goes against the limited atonement. Limited atonement is that Christ only died for the elect. He didn't die for everyone. He only died for the elect. Well, here it says Christ died for the ungodly. So does limited atonement teach that the elect are the only ungodly ones and everybody else is godly? But they're predestined to hell. So the godly go to hell and the ungodly get salvation in limited atonement? Okay, it doesn't make sense. It's not biblical. The limited atonement isn't. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for all humanity. And so, again, this verse goes against that limited atonement. And the sad part is the world has a free gift offered to them but they reject it. So Christ died for the ungodly. You have this offer of salvation. It's by grace through faith. You just put your faith in Christ's death. He died for the ungodly, but the world rejects it. So that's a sad fact of reality. Uh, verse 7, it says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Uh, this is reality. This is fact of the matter. Um, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. So maybe, it says scarcely, so it will happen, but it's not very often that the most righteous man you know, maybe something happens, he's about to die. Someone like that, you know, take me instead, right? Take me instead. This man, he's a better man than me. He can do more good in the world than I can. It's better if I die than him. Okay, that might happen every now and then. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. So perhaps for a good man, some might would dare to die. So it's kind of the same point. You know, this man's a good man. He's got a high position maybe in the world. He can do a lot of good. Don't kill him, kill me. Right? I'll give my life for this good man. So these are things that might happen. Someone might dare to do that. 
scarcely four righteous men will one uh, die. Um, the difference between us and God is that God commendeth his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you had that phrase, but God. Um, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here, kind of same thing, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together with Christ. So God in his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. So again, God committed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again, you have this contrast. In humanity, every now and then someone might die for a good person. But God loved us so much that he died for us even while we were sinners, um, even while we were enemies of the cross. Uh, if you look at John fifteen thirteen, which I think most of us know this passage, greater love have no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So again, he says, this is the greatest love that a man can have, that you lay down your life for your friends. But again, God has even greater love than that because he died for us while we were sinners, not his friends, but sinners. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, we talked about this some last week. This is how you know God loves you. Okay, It's not this emotion. It's not this feeling. It's the fact that he demonstrated his love, introduced his love by Jesus dying on the cross for us. Um, Galatians 2.20 It says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So again, that love is connected to Christ giving himself for Paul. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ demonstrated his love. God showed his love by Christ dying on the cross. It's not this feeling, right? It's not this personal uh romantic love that God loves me right he came for me and me only okay he died for the world because he loved the world and that's how you know he loved the world because he died for them okay so don't get caught up in the emotions as a lot of modern Christianity does today um Ephesians 5 2 I think we read that the other week Titus 3 3 through 6 It says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So it says here, The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And it appeared in Jesus Christ. Okay, we're not saved by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And how are we saved? By faith in Christ's death and resurrection. So that love of God appeared to man in Christ and him giving his life for us. Okay, so that's how the love of God appears to man, by the gospel, okay, by Christ's death and resurrection. So that is the love of God. 
And this is different than John 3.16, this passage here. God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you look at uh, verse 10, it says, or verse 9, Being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. And for if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So the love of God here in Romans 5, 8 through 10, speaks of being justified by Christ's blood, that Christ showed us his love by dying for us while we were sinners. Um, Verse 10, um, reconciled to God by the death of his son and saved by his life. So his death and resurrection. Okay, this is the love of God that Paul preaches. If you go to John 3, 16... This is probably the most popular passage in the Bible. And many people take it to say this is the gospel, right? God so the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is not the gospel, okay? This goes contrary to, right, evangelical Christianity, Protestants today. But you hear nothing of the death and resurrection in that verse. Now I'm just going to look at this passage real quick. To show that it's different than Romans 5, 8 through 10. But John 3, 16, if you start at uh, verse 10 through 21 to get the whole context. Of course, in verses uh, 1 through 9, he's speaking with Nicodemus, tells him you must be born again. It says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. One thing to make note of, the red letters. The red letters are not inspired. Okay, I think the first edition of red letters came out in the 1800s. And the reason I say that, um, listening to a message this week, kind of made me think. The guy was saying, question the red letters. Okay, if I went through the Bible and wrote down all of Paul's letters in blue, would you trust me to get it perfect? and not make a mistake. If I wrote down everything Paul said verbally in blue letters and gave you that Bible, would you take it? Okay, everything in blue is definitely Paul's letters. He didn't miss nothing. He got it all right. Would you trust me to do that? That's a lot of words. It's like I'm going to make a mistake, right? So why would we trust someone to do that with Jesus' words? Because that's what happened. Okay? So the point being, if you look at it, it says... Uh, in red letters in verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel, knowest not these things? Clearly says Jesus answered and said unto him. But couldn't it be in verse uh, 13, John comes in and makes a statement. So you have a question mark at the end of verse 12. If I tell you of heavenly things, 
uh, will you not believe them? And it says, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. What if John wrote that as an insertion, right? Inserting here in this passage. Okay. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whereas this is not Jesus telling Nicodemus this, but now John is writing, saying these statements, which are true. They should be in the Bible, but I'm not questioning that. My question is whether or not Jesus actually said them, uh, because it would make more sense, actually, if John said them. Because why would Jesus say, speak of himself kind of in the third person, right? The Son of Man went up to heaven. He's ascended down. He's in heaven. Um, you can just say, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. There in verse 13. Well, if Jesus is standing here on earth talking to Nicodemus and says the Son of Man which is in heaven, that doesn't make sense, right? So what if John is writing after the fact, after the ascension, right, saying this statement would make more sense, okay? So just something for you to think about, if that makes sense, if you see there, verse 13, talking about the Son of Man which is in heaven. But since you have the right letters, this person is saying Jesus said that to Nicodemus on earth before he ascended into heaven. So again, it wouldn't make sense. So I would think more agree with the guy I was listening to. John probably said this statement and possibly said it um, all the way through to verse 21. He could have said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only gotten son. John could have been saying that, not Jesus. Um, but going back to going through this, one thing here that many people take to say is the gospel is verse 14. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man... <laughs> Be lifted up, must be lifted up. Many people take that to mean the cross. Well, it doesn't say that. Okay, It doesn't say the Son of Man will be lifted up and crucified. It just says the Son of Man be lifted up. And this comes from Numbers 21, verse 49, uh, 4 through 9. And I think it's good to read this story to see what's going on there to try to make more sense of what's going on in John 3. If you look at Numbers 21, verse 4, it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Okay, so that's the story that... John is quoting there in John 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Was the serpent killed and put on a pole? No. So why would we think it's talking about Christ's death? In the context, okay? It's not there. We're reading into it. Um, it says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. 
Um, again, in the context, if you go back to verse 13, no man have descended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. When Christ ascended, was he not lifted up? What happened when he got to heaven? Didn't God say, sit thou on my right hand on the throne? I think what it's speaking of here is Christ being lifted up on the throne. Speaking of, one, his ascension, after his ascension, him being lifted up. But again, he's lifted up on that throne. And in the context here, verse um, 18 that person that does not believe in the name of the Son of God is condemned already. It's that person that doesn't believe in his death or resurrection, but is simply in the name of God, in Christ as Messiah, Christ as King. Okay? So I believe what this passage is saying is that God gave his Son to the world to be King of the world, that whosoever believes in him will not perish. Okay? Because they didn't know about the death and resurrection at this point. It hadn't happened. Right? This is John 3. This is before the death and resurrection. Now you can, of course, read into it. We know that Christ has died and resurrected. He sort of believes in that shall be saved. But it's not here in the context. I believe it's speaking of Christ as Messiah, as King. And that that lifting up is him being set on the throne. Um, in Revelation 21, verse 5, 2, it's kind of interesting that they use that story of the serpents in the tribulation, right? They're going to go through trials and death and they're going to have to trust in Christ right, to get through it, to be saved. In Revelation 21, 5, it says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write for these words are true and faithful. So when Christ sits on the throne, he will make all things new. And those, again, that have faith in him will be saved. Um, so I think that's more the uh, context there in John 3.16. It's not speaking of his death and resurrection because that was not known yet. Um, if you look at John 2.19 through 23, it says, uh, verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So in John two nineteen, he says, Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is speaking of his resurrection. But they didn't know that. It says here, the disciples didn't know that until they remembered it after he resurrected. And then they believed the scripture. So the disciples here didn't even understand the resurrection until after he resurrected and explained it to them. If you go to Mark 16, verse 9 through 15. So now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that they had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive, and had been seen of her, believed not. After that he appeared in another form unto two of them, as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. So Mary Magdalene goes to the disciples, says Jesus is resurrected, they don't believe her. Then he appears to two men, uh, walking uh, in the country, tells them, they go to the residue, speaking of the twelve apostles, they don't believe them. So three people have went and told them Christ is resurrected, and they don't believe them. It says, And afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, 
and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So now Christ comes and rebukes the disciples for their unbelief. Right? They didn't believe the witnesses that said he had resurrected. So I'll just say that to show you in John three sixteen, Nicodemus didn't understand the death and resurrection. The disciples there didn't understand the death and resurrection. Even after he resurrected, they didn't believe it until Christ appeared to them. Okay, then they understood what he meant about destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And also, when he says that phrase, or actually, no, in Matthew 21, in Matthew, hold on, which one is it? The one about Jonah. Matthew 12, 38 through 40. It says, Then the certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there he's speaking of his death, but he says it's a sign. Okay, It's a sign to show that he is the Messiah. That's what he tells them. He's not revealing that I'm dying for your sins. Same thing in John 2 where we read about uh, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He says that was a sign to them. Um, John 2.18, it says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us? He says, Destroy his temple in three days, I'll raise it up. So in his earthly ministry, he simply says, My death and my resurrection is a sign. He doesn't say it's a gospel. It's your, my death and resurrection is going to save you. It's a sign. At the end of John 20, it says, All these things did Jesus to show he was the Son of God. Okay, the earthly ministry of Jesus was to fulfill the prophets to confirm the promises to the circumcision, as Romans 15 says. That's the purpose of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to show that Christ was the Messiah. He fulfilled the prophets. All these things he did were a sign to the Jews that he was that Messiah. And those that believe in him as Messiah will be saved. And that's what John 3 is teaching. As he's lifted up as a serpent, those who look upon him, believe on him, believe in the name of him as the Son of God, those shall be saved. And so it's different from Romans and Paul explaining the love of God dying for us while we were yet sinners. His death is what reconciled us to God. His resurrection is what saves us, gives us life. Okay, can you see that, the difference of the context there? So again, you can read back into that and spiritualize it and say, well, just like those who believe in him could have life, us believing in Christ and his death and resurrection today have eternal life. So you can make those, I guess, spiritual um, applications, but the literal context and teaching there is not the gospel that... Paul is preaching here in Romans. So don't uh, confuse the two because once you do, you'll put yourself under the doctrine of John. And of course, the doctrine of Jesus' earthly ministry is teaching the law, confirming the promises to the circumcision, and we're not the circumcision. So that's the point of me going through this so you don't make that mistake, as many people do. Um, so there's a difference between uh, Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us, and that way we got sinners, Christ died for us. And John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only God, so that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
There's a difference there in the context of the passages and what is known at that time. Uh, continue on in Romans, Romans 5 verse 9, it says, Much more than, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So much more, and this is much more than the benefits in verses 1 through 5. So Paul is now expanding on the blessings that we have in Christ. Remember last week I talked about Romans 1 through 5 are some of those spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Um, we have justification by faith, we have peace with God, uh, we stand in grace, and we have the hope of glory. Okay, these are spiritual blessings. In verse 9 now, he says, much more than now being justified by his blood. Again, Romans 5.1, by faith uh, we are justified. Uh, we shall be saved from wrath to come. Um, God will pour out his wrath at the great tribulation. And we read, looked at that some last week, Revelation 16.1, the angel pours out the vials of the wrath of God. Okay, the church won't be there because we're saved from wrath to come because we are justified by his blood. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says we are delivered from the wrath to come. So we're delivered from that great tribulation. Um, it says for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So while we were enemies, this is the status of opposition. right? That's the status of humanity with God before the cross. We were in opposition to him. Um, but we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, by the death of Christ. And of course, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ on the cross. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Christ is that one and only mediator. Christ is the one that reconciled us to God, okay, because he gave himself a ransom for all. Okay, so that death on the cross, that ransom for all, makes Christ that mediator, the one that reconciles us to God. So we were enemies, we were in opposition to God because of our sin, but Christ has reconciled us to him. So it's by the death of Christ that we are reconciled. And then it says we are saved through his life. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Christ's death reconciled us. Um, but much more than that, we can be saved through his resurrection. So he says being reconciled, much more, we can have salvation through his life or be saved by his life. So his resurrection is what provides that eternal life. If Christ didn't resurrect, then... Our hope is in vain because if he didn't resurrect, we're not going to resurrect. So, yay, our sins are paid for, but we die anyway, right, and never resurrect. So we're saved by his life. That resurrection is important. It's the foundation of our faith. If Christ didn't resurrect, our faith is in vain, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15. So you're saved by his life, by his resurrection. It takes both the death and resurrection for your salvation. Uh, just like Romans 4.25, the emphasis here is on the death and resurrection. Romans 4.25 says, or 24 and 25, it says, But for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So Paul's emphasis is the death and resurrection. Okay, that is the gospel that Paul preaches. And so when we talk about 1 Corinthians 15.1 through 4 being the gospel, where he clearly says the gospel whereby you are saved, that Christ died, was buried, and resurrected, 
Okay, it's not the only place that he teaches that. That's just the most clearest example. You can clearly see here in Romans 4, 24 and 25, Romans 5, uh, 8 through 11, he's saying Christ died for you. That's how you're reconciled to God. You're saved by his life, okay? Um, you were delivered for our offenses. He was delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification. So all through Romans, he talks about the death and resurrection being how we are saved, okay? That is the gospel that Paul preaches. So it says, we shall be saved by his life, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So not only so means there is more. Okay, so we're saved by his life, and not only so, which means there is more, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have joy because of Christ and what he has done. Knowing your position with God and the spiritual blessings you have should bring you joy. Okay, so we also joy in God. And I think this also speaks of not just having joy in your life, but he says we joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Much like a parent would say, my kids are my pride and joy. Right? They just have that, that joy about them. They talk about them. They love them. Okay, we can joy in God. I didn't say our mom would say that. Like I said some moms, some parents. Um, but it talks about like when people are around you, they realize this person is happy with their relationship with God. They joy in this God, in this Jesus, that they have this relationship. Okay, Jesus is their pride and joy. Okay, I think that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, when you understand your spiritual position, it should bring that joy. You should have that joy in Christ because of what he's done and what you have in him. Um, join by whom, by Jesus Christ, we have now received the atonement. So there's some uh, debate over this word atonement. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament. The Greek word is katalage. I believe that's how you pronounce it, katalage. And it is translated reconciliation two times and reconciling one time. And then the fourth time it's found is here, and it's uh, translated atonement. In the Old Testament, there's two different Hebrew words that are translated atonement. Um, one of them means to cover sin, and the other word is can mean to reconcile. So in the Old Testament, you see atonement. Sometimes it just means to cover sin. Sometimes it can mean to reconcile. So the word atonement can mean to reconcile. That's the point. So I think some people debate it should have been reconciled here as well. Um, by whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, you could put it uh, not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, Because that word atonement can just mean, some people might mean it to just cover sin, whereas we know Christ died for those sins. He didn't just cover them as the Old Testament sacrifices did. All that did was cover sin. Christ had to come and take them away, die for them permanently. So again, that word atonement can have some debate, but it can mean reconcile. So you could say, by whom we have now the reconciliation. Um, and again, in the context, verse 10, he says, uh, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. So again, reconciliation is in the context. So that would kind of make, I guess, more sense. Um, but that word atonement, that's what it means, reconciliation. And then on the back, I just have a list of the spiritual blessings that we see here in Romans 5, 1 through 11. Uh, you have peace with God in verse 1. 
you stand in grace in verse 2. You have the hope of glory in verse 2. You have the love of God shed in your hearts, verse 5. The Holy Ghost is given unto us, in verse 5. You're saved from wrath to come, in verse 9. And you received reconciliation, in verse 11. So that's what, seven spiritual blessings that you have just here in these 11 verses. So again, this whole chapter explains some of those spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. So any thoughts or questions?